Hello and welcome to the latest Guernsey Green Finance podcast, rated one of the top 10 most useful sustainable finance podcasts by the Green Finance Guide. Guernsey is one of the jurisdictions leading the way in green and sustainable finance. And as part of this podcast series, we'll be speaking to and learning from some of the leading global figures in the field. My name is Stephanie Glover, and I'm responsible for all things green and sustainable finance related at We Are Guernsey, the promotional agency for Guernsey's finance industry. I am delighted to be speaking to Ingrid Holmes, Executive Director of the Green Finance Institute. Ingrid, I've just had the absolute pleasure of attending COP26 in Glasgow, representing Guernsey and its financial services industry. And I was really pleased to attend one of the Green Finance Institute sessions, where I got to meet several of your colleagues and talk about the exciting programme events that the GFI was putting on. But before we get into the detail of COP, Ingrid, firstly to introduce you to our listeners, how did you end up working in this area of green finance? Can you tell us a little of your personal backstory? Sure. And uh, thanks, Stephanie, for inviting me to join this podcast. It's my pleasure to be here. Well, I've worked across public and private and third sector uh, during my second career, which is in green finance, my first being in science publishing and writing. It's always been really important to me that I use my skills and experience in a way that does no harm and tries to create a better world. And climate change really is the biggest threat humanity and the species we share this planet with face. I'm basically a policy wonk at heart, but I realised I wasn't going to be able to fully contribute to addressing the climate challenge unless I understood how business works and money moves. So what started as a job in government and then in parliament naturally changed to to a financial focus. I work for uh, Climate Change Capital, which was a um, climate-focused asset manager, but then moved into an NGO, um, E3G, to lobby for more sustainable financial markets because the opportunities just weren't big enough to meet the scale of our climate challenge. And then finally, back into um, asset management and most lately uh, to the Green Finance Institute. What really prompted my latest move to the GFI was fear, if I'm honest, fear that emissions are still going up time is running out and we're just not doing enough in the sector. And I really wanted to be at the front line working with primary capital deployers to to scale the investment needed to um, deliver our climate and nature solutions before time runs out. Thanks for that great introduction. I can definitely sympathise with the fear and hopefully also a little bit of optimism in there as well. Um, I think it's definitely a common theme of our guests that that joint thinking of science and finance, I think it's really important. So we are recording this podcast on the final day of COP, and we're still waiting to hear the conclusions and agreements from the world leaders at the COP summit. However, several key announcements have already been made. So Ingrid, which of these agreements or commitments do you think are going to be transformational for the finance sector? And is there anything we need to watch out for? So, I mean, yeah, as you say, Stephanie, the final text hasn't been agreed, but we have um, heard news this morning of a bit of a breakthrough on bringing forward the ratchet mechanism to next year. And that's going to be really, really important. So, as we know, the pledges made by um, countries don't yet yet add up to the Paris Agreement goal of 1.5 degrees at a stretch or even two degrees. 
they're currently around 2.4. I think for me, the Indian announcement was a major diplomatic breakthrough. Um, the near-term goals that they put on the table of halving emissions from energy in 2030 are far more important, actually, than the 27 net zero date, which came in for some criticism. Mm -hmm. um, but it's why there have been these calls for um, annual updates of commitments, as well as a proposal not to come back in 2025, but actually earlier, which is what's needed to keep um, 1.5 degrees alive. Um, some of the sticking points, of course, have remained around finalisation of the rules for carbon markets. So this all important Article 6, and, and we can talk about carbon pricing later. And, you know, real disappointment, I think, at the failure of developed nations to meet the, the 100 billion uh, per year climate finance pledge to assist with the all important um, adaptation to the, the, the climate change that's happening now, as well as um, the transition. But I think on the positive side, trying to keep things positive, because um, there is a lot to, to try to look forward to. There have been um, many sectoral announcements. So we call these the coalitions of the willing on stopping deforestation, um, methane reductions from existing um, oil and gas. That'll be really important. And of course, um, efforts to phase out coal. But for me, the big one was the 130 trillion um, committed under GFANS to, to net zero in 2050. Yeah, I keep finding myself quoting Mark Carney, and I've been quoting him, I think, about four or five times this week on that 130 trillion. So that's really great news. It is. And, and I think um, while the 130 trillion has come in for some um, criticism for being nothing but hot air, I can tell you from having worked inside um, private sector businesses that actually those all important pledges are a really key catalyst action within those businesses so i can i think we can see a lot more to come from the financial services side yeah i definitely agree and almost those businesses that aren't set up to g fans hopefully they'll be hit within the supply chain of those that are so i think that 130 130 trillion if anything might be conservative yeah and don't don't estimate underestimate the importance of uh, peer pressure you know people always look around at what their peers are doing um, and want to be within the peloton not outside it so i think we can expect more to come yeah, I definitely agree. Um, so there was another exciting announcement on the finance specific day around the IFRS creating a new International Sustainability <laughs> Standards Board. Can you explain for our listeners what this means in practice and how the finance industry can implement this change? Yeah, so this is where it all starts to get um, deeply policy wonkish, all the stuff I love. Um, <laughs> so if we go back to basic. I'm, gl I'm, gl I'm glad someone does. I think that's cool. <laughs> It's a much needed role and not everybody can do it. Um, so one of the challenges we often hear cited around um, getting to net zero, net zero is the plethora of um, ESG or environmental, social and governance data out, out there, all underpinned by different methodologies and metrics that investors and lenders have to wade through. So there, was, there are, I think, at least five um, sort of voluntary standard setters, GRI, SASB, CDP, CDSB, and the um, Integrated Reporting Council, all providing different frameworks um, to try to promote sustainability-related disclosures in the market. And of course, that just meant any investor or, or bank trying to use this information was trying to compare apples with pears and it's one of the the drivers of claims of greenwashing in the market um, because the lack of comparability also makes it really difficult to get a helicopter view 
across what companies are doing, whether you know one is ahead of the other and actually whether they're having a positive impact or not. So this is where the ISSB has stepped in. So they're, they're um, housed under the same organisation that sets the accounting rules. And they basically said, let's come together and set one um, comparable global standard on sustainability against which all companies, um, including financial institutions, can be expected to report. I think there was some concern um, in the market and among experts last year when this initiative was announced that it would just be another framework, a six added to the five. So actually this consolidation that we're now seeing among those um, existing sustainability standard setters, the, the acronyms I, I cited earlier, um, the fact that they're now consolidating under this new ISSB is really key. Um, I think, to the success of the initiative. And the other thing to, that I think is worth noting is the UK with its um, new sustainability-related disclosure regimes has said publicly they're going to hook on to this ISSB initiative. So that's going to be an important first market um, to help build global consensus around this new framework. It's really good news. I'm really pleased you think this is a consolidation. I, I admit I was nervous when I first saw the news that, oh, no, there's another standard. It's the, you know, the, the sixth standard yeah. coming out, but the consolidation is definitely great news. Yeah, absolutely. It's definitely progress. So I don't know if you had a similar experience, but while I was up in Glasgow, I was speaking to people all across the finance, financial sector. And for almost all of them, and for me included, it was the first time they attended a COP event. It really felt like this COP was the finance COP where industry was really engaged in creating real momentum for sustainable investing. Do you agree? Do you think this COP has galvanised the finance industry? And what are you expecting in terms of tangible action plans from the finance community? Yeah, I mean, I think I, I definitely agree with that. Um, when we used to talk about finance in the context of COPs, it always meant climate finance. So um, more the sort of public funding transfers between developed and developing nations. But I think definitely this year, we've seen a shift now to include the private sector as well. And I think, you know, going back to GFANS, our favourite uh, acronym on this, this podcast today, the, the GFANS pledges have really helped shift the, the dial there. Um, so I think, what does this mean at a practical level for firms? I, coming from more of an asset management background myself, I think I'd expect to see two things. One is a stronger focus on engagement um, by asset managers with investee companies, um, but also actually with governments on creating the um, low carbon policy frameworks we now need to see. And also actually on exclusion. So we've heard a lot in the uh, sort of divestment ba uh, debate about the need to step away from polluting companies. I think that sort of underestimates the complexity of the challenge, except in some cases where there is a clear case now where a moral case where we need to step away from financing really damaging activities. And I'm thinking here about the need to retire coal plants from the energy system as soon as possible. And to be honest, I don't really see a viable transition pathway for things like um, tar sands operations um, or even oil and gas, unless it's something to something quite transformative, like providing carbon capture and storage services. But I think asset managers really need to look at that, that, that set of issues really quite hard. 
I think within banking and insurance, we do need to see now much more of a focus on engaging their clients on the process of transitioning away from climate damaging activities in a pivot to green. Um, and this is where I think there's just massive opportunity. So conditionality on lending attached to sustainability um, linked KPIs is a really good model for this, um, as well as clear red lines on activities that will no longer be funded. Just to give you an example of a conversation I had with a pure play company in this space, um, it, I won't name it, but it's a, a large insulation manufacturer. Um, and they said they're now getting um, banks really competing to lend money to their revolving credit facilities almost at no cost because they're so keen to have um, green activities on the balance sheet. Um, but I think just to wrap up my comments, it's going gonna, it's gonna to take real moral courage from some of our financial service leaders to walk away from short-term value in the interest of securing our collective future on this planet, which is, of course, what COP26 is all about. But I think that um, finally, in private markets, um, we're going to see a key role for them in scaling up new technologies and business models. So again, more um, opportunity there. And we do need to get better at ensuring capital flows to the emerging markets that are suffering most from, from climate impacts now. Finally, I think we mustn't forget nature in all of this. Um, nature was quite high on the, the agenda at COP this year. It's key both for mitigation and adaptation. I think there's a lot of work to be done um, in a meaningful way on the public-private collaboration front there if we're, we're to figure out how to, to fund that remediation of, of, of damage to our, our natural biodiversity. So much to digest there. That was a really great answer. Um, speaking to your point on nature, I definitely think I agree. I attended several talks about the role of nature and how we can't you know, separate climate and nature. We need to build these two solutions in together. I also really liked your idea of moral courage. I might take that phrase. I really enjoyed that. <laughs> it's a tough one, but, it, but it's, what's, it's what's needed now for sure. Def definitely in those kind of industries that are harder than others to decarbonize. And I think the finance industry really needs to be aware of those when they're thinking about their bottom lines. Yeah, and we're seeing we're seeing quite a hot market for, for hiring in the sustainability space, which I think is really positive here. Just looking at it at a sector by sector basis, the, the issue is sort of understanding within your you know, ag teams or heavy industry teams, what is the transition pathway for these clients and how can we help them? So it's back to, um, you know, transition finance, sustainability, linked loans, whatever you, you want to call them, um, they're going to be key. Um, and actually, the announcements also, which came out of the government, the UK government, on the need for companies to publish transition plans, that's going to be an important part of the, the disclosure architecture around this as well. That's great. Um, I think we kind of hinted earlier that I wanted to talk a little bit around carbon pricing. So maybe to start and to take us right back to basics, what is a carbon price? Can you explain what this is for our listeners who might not be aware of the term? Yeah, sure. So um, it's a it's a price on the pollution, the damage caused by um, carbon in our in our on our planet. Um, there are two ways of thinking about it. One is simply applying a tax, um, which will put a price on that pollution, but won't necessarily cap the volumes produced. Or you can think about a trading scheme where you cap the volume and then allow the demand and supply curve to set, set the price. 
what we've seen um, with carbon pricing to date is, um, you know, market structures have not delivered the kind of um, pricing levels that we really need to see to uh, deliver the technology deployment and, and transformational shifts we need from our most um, polluting sectors. So while there's been you know, a lot of interest, it hasn't, hasn't delivered currently on, on that tech, tech deployment piece, which is why we've always had to see um, other measures in place like regulation and things like feed-in tariffs to, to support the investment needed. Yeah, I think I think when anyone looks to kind of offset a flight you might have recently taken, it, it's astounding how cheap the carbon offsets are at the moment. It, it I think clearly shows that the real carbon price isn't being brought in there. Yeah, I mean, some of the academic research on this says we need carbon prices up at the level of something like 100 to 200 dollars per ton. But you're right, you could buy a a tree based carbon offset for probably less than 10 dollars. Um, and even actually, if you're going to the most um, probably robust global carbon market, the EU ETS, I think carbon prices are only up at £60. So it tells you there's a lot more, sorry, €60, Euros, there's a lot more that needs to be done there. So we don't have a lot of time left at COP. Do you think it's likely that we'll see this agreement being made around carbon pricing and carbon markets? Or will this have to be driven by industry at a later date? I think it's difficult to see uh, a resolution um, coming through there. So this is the, the all-important Article 6 framework, um, which is, is needed to, to underpin a global carbon market. There are a number of really difficult issues on the table. They include things like how to treat credits from the previous scheme under the previous climate agreement, the, the Kyoto Protocol, but I think also a lot of issues around how we ensure integrity of supply. So we've heard lots of stories um, actually this year from um, forests used for offsetting carbon emissions burning down in forest fires in California. So that, that integrity issue is absolutely key, but also how credits are used. I think there are legitimate but perhaps overstated concerns that um, you know offsets will be used as a substitute for actual material mitigation um, and, and an excuse to continue with uh, business as usual. My sense is we need to be developing these markets alongside continued efforts to, to mitigate because we just know there'll be sectors like agriculture, um, some manufacturing that will, it will be really difficult to um, abate without without these offsets, but I'm not sure that the the carbon markets are the actually the only answer here. I've sort of come round to the idea that there are real there are real strong use cases for for a global carbon price. If you look at um, multilateral development banks that are more on the progressive side, like the European Investment Bank, they've been using a shadow carbon price for over a decade in their economic and financial assessments of projects. So trying to um, price in uh, climate damage uh, from uh, any support for fossil based um, energy in particular, but we're also now starting to see them used in financial stress tests. So the um, Prudential Regulation Authority, which is the supervisory arm of the Bank of England, 
has applied carbon prices in the scenarios they use to underpin a supervision on climate risk in the biennial exploratory scenario. And you could imagine a situation in the not too different future when financial regulators actually ask financial institutions to apply carbon prices to underpin their risk assessments, which in turn then could become company policy as part of a climate change integrated risk management approach. And that could be a real game changer because de facto you'd start to see a carbon price uh, applied to reflect that carbon risk and opportunity to financial institutions. Yeah, I think it's a really innovative idea. And I always love tying things into existing risk management processes. It makes it so much easier for businesses to put in place, I think. Yeah, it, I mean, it, for me, it's all about how do we wire this into the system as it stands. I don't, I'm not convinced that climate should necessarily um, be treated as a completely separate risk. So yeah, agree with you, Stephanie, the more we can build this into existing systems, the better. So the Green Finance Institute, you also hosted your own fantastic calendar of events as part of the Green Horizon Summit. I personally really enjoyed reading your email summaries and I watched the Wake Up to COP program a lot. Were there any particular highlights for you that came out of your COP program of events? Well, thanks, Stephanie. That's that's really lovely to hear. And I know that the team put a huge amount of work into to pulling that programme together with our partners, um, the City of London. And of course, um, Rianne Mary did an absolutely fantastic job opening and closing the sessions, as well as speaking on a wide range of topics from carbon markets and nature we've been discussing here to transport and cities. Um, I think for me, there were probably two standout uh, elements to the, the programme. One was I found the discussions on nature really compelling. My, my first degree was in um, zoology. So these, these are subjects very close to my heart. And I was really pleased to hear the key role um, uh, that Indigenous communities are playing in protecting our richest and most vulnerable habitats. That's really been brought to the, the fore and their role in protecting this biodiversity and restoring uh, natural habitats going forward. But it also does um, raise issues around, well, even if we do get this 100 billion a year of climate finance starting to flow between North and South, how do we make sure that that money flows down to um, the people who can actually make a difference on the ground because uh, they're not necessarily connected to those traditional governance and monetary frameworks. And I think the other sort of surprise um, hit for me was the NatWest chair, Howard Davis. Um, so back to my sort of policy wonkery, I think he did an absolutely brilliant job on the role of regulation and standards, including the ISSB in uh, helping green financial markets. So that was that was a great one to watch if you get a chance to look at it again. Yeah, I think there's definitely a lot on my hit list of things to watch on demand. So I'm going to have a busy week, I think. So I really liked your point there on nature. And I think during COVID, you know, us in Guernsey really appreciated our local nature and our beaches and our environment here. How do we balance protecting our nature at home versus protecting nature of Indigenous communities? Well, I think we need both, um, but we probably tackle them in different ways. So... UK out to Indigenous communities, it's going to be about trying to practical things like trying to, to buy sustainably sourced products, but it's also going to be back to the 100 billion question um, and making sure the governance around that supports those local communities close to 
um, forests to, to do what's right in terms of the, the restoration um, progress. I suspect things like um, big data are going to uh, come, come in very handy here in terms of surveillance of what's actually happening in those forest areas too. Um, at home, I mean, I, I guess it's one of the downsides of increased urbanisation, isn't it? That we live in our cities and we get more and more disconnected from nature. And, and you're right, Stephanie, that, that COVID and the lockdown has perhaps brought more of an understanding of the, the benefits um, of, of having a, a thriving natural um, ecosystem around you. I mean, I think it's fundamentally about thinking differently about uh, green spaces. What are the opportunities that they can bring in terms of um, actively promoting biodiversity? I do hope that with the um, environment bill that's just been agreed and new funding available um, for landowners to, to start thinking about this natural restoration we'll start to see a bit of a turnaround on that. We're also trying to do some very practical stuff um, at the GFI on this issue, actually. One of the innovative financial instruments we're trying to develop, uh, we're in active talks with a very large um, international investment bank and a development finance corporation is to start to use nature-based data to underpin sustainable imports, which is going to be really important for things like forestry, commodities, and so on going forward. So there are some really interesting, I think, green finance opportunities here as well, obviously underpinned by the right data. Yeah, I'm really glad you brought that back to your work with the GFI. That's really interesting. So as a final question, as we move past COP26, what are the main aims and ambitions of the GFI in supporting firms to achieve all of these fantastic commitments they've made over the last two weeks? So going back to the, the GFANS, you know, this is just a massive opportunity. Um, we've got the net zero commitments on the table. We've got a supply of capital wanting to move. The question is how. We heard a lot of talk during um, Glasgow on the need for radical public-private collaboration. And that's where we need to move next. We need to focus on implementation. So what are we doing at GFI? Well, we're here to work with those um, financial market participants to, in the first instance, turn the uh, UK government's fantastic net zero strategy into an investment plan. And actually, we'll work with any other governments uh, that want to do that, for, for that matter. Um, so this is going to open up new opportunities in nature, we've talked about, um, but also electric vehicles, green infrastructure, but we do need to do that detailed work um, to understand, well, what does private capital need? Where can it take risk? Where do we need to have some public funding in there, um, you know, guarantees, equity, whatever it is, to get those first projects off the ground? Um, and what are the policy levers is the other piece. And we want to make those conversations happen identifying barriers, but really, really importantly, developing um, solutions as well. Great. So it sounds like you've got a very busy year ahead of you. We do, but we're, we're really looking forward to it. Brilliant. So thank you again, Ingrid, for your time and insights today. Um, I particularly enjoyed listening to how important it is to include transition plans as part of disclosures. And I'll definitely be keeping watch for carbon markets and carbon pricing. Thank you also to you for listening. We have a, quite a back catalogue of interviews and panel discussions on the Guernsey Green Finance podcast channel. You can check them out by searching for Guernsey Green Finance wherever you get your podcasts. If you enjoyed today's episode, please leave a, re a review or a comment. It's always great to get feedback from you. 
You can also find us at guernseyofgreenfinance.org and weareguernsey.com. And please interact with us on Twitter at gsygreenfinance and at weareguernsey. We will also have links to Ingrid's and the Green Finance Institute's social media in our show notes. So please check those out to hear more from them. We'll be back soon with another edition of the Guernsey Green Finance podcast.